second half of the program we are off the radio now we are online only uh you can get this as a podcast as well as listen live to the stream or go back and listen to the stream after it's live um you can also listen to us online on the local internet radio station unclaimed mysteries radio they broadcast out of huntsville alabama on friday mornings is when you can hear overtime the following friday right because it's a recording Uh, But you can't hear us anywhere on terrestrial radio right now, folks. That's right. We have rid ourselves. We have broken free from the shackles of the FCC sensors here in this hour and a half of the program. And we've got some good stuff. Uh, So I uh, um, let's you want to just go ahead and get started with with, you want to jump off with with this Teamster stuff or or you want to do something else? What do you think? Let's talk about it. All right. So. Last week, we told y'all that the Teamsters has set a had set a July fifth deadline for a um, for a last, best, and final offer from UPS. Um, and so, since then, we learned that negotiations broke down on that day, on July the fifth, at about four fifteen a.m. after a twenty-four hour bargaining session, from what I can tell, which uh, sounds terrible. <laughs> I could not imagine spending 24 hours across the table from corporate ghouls uh, talking about how how much my members deserve. <laughs> that would be that would just absolutely drive me crazy. But that's what they did. And uh, so the Teamsters have said that UPS walked away from the bargaining table around uh, 4 a.m. on Wednesday after the no- National Negotiating Committee unanimously rejected the company's latest substandard offer. The National Negotiating Committee has now left Washington, D.C., and local unions and members are ramping up practice picketing and ready-to-strike actions. Uh, the TDU says that the company, the Teamsters for a Democratic Union, which is a reform caucus that backed the Teamsters United slate uh, that put forward Sean O'Brien for president, the Teamsters for a Democratic Union said that the company did not put a last, best, and final offer on the table. There's still a path for the company to make a contract offer that Teamster negotiators can recommend to the membership, but that path is narrowing and time is running out. We are united as a union and ready to strike if that's what it takes to win, said Teamsters for a Democratic Union co-chair and shop steward Eugene Broswell. And, uh, you know, like we said last week, there have been several points, which is kind of baffling to me. There have been several points where the Teamsters have put down deadlines 
Um, and then the deadlines pass without really any like ramifications for UPS or any uh, uh, penalties at all, uh, as far as I can see. And, you know, it looks like that's happened again. Um, which, you know, that in and of itself is to me not a good sign. But uh, I, I do think it, it seems like it has been, it, it is over, it, it, it's, there's more weight on the side that, that UPS Teamsters are prepared for a strike. We're seeing practice picketing all over the country. There's a lot of energy uh, in the country and within the Teamsters Union uh, for a strike if it is necessary. Um, but it is disappointing to see this, uh, to see this continuing you know, drawing lines and then backing up and allowing UPS to cross them and drawing a line. You know, I mean, the first one uh, that, I, that I can remember was that uh, the Teamsters said that they will not negotiate na the, on the national level until all of the supplements are resolved, meaning that the regional negotiating committees have agreed to send that supplement with the national when it goes to a vote. Um, and that didn't happen until July the 3rd. They started negotiating the national contract back in January. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's huge. That, that's a huge difference in what they said they were going to do and then what actually happened. Um, additionally, they said that... Uh, they set June the 30th as the date, the deadline for a last, best, and final offer. Um, and then they moved that to July the 5th as the deadline for a last, best, and final offer. And... As you know, if you're listening to the show, presumably, we are now on the 8th of July and we still don't have a last, best, and final offer. And, uh, you know, so that that's that's disappointing. And, uh, you know, they, they set this deadline, but they never explained what would happen if UPS didn't meet the deadline. But I think the obvious implication is that, um, you know, okay, if you don't give us a last, best, and final offer by this day, uh, then we're going to, like, stop negotiating and we're going to strike. It, that's kind of what I, that, that's kind of the way that I would have interpreted it. Uh, but that hasn't happened, and uh, so they're, they're still waiting for a last, best, and final offer, and they're saying that there's still a path to avoid a strike. And so we're going to see what happens um, going forward, uh, but definitely some, some um, you know, some mixed stuff going on there as far as I can tell, in my, in my opinion. Um, but uh, Sean O'Brien did make a media tour last week, and he did a very good job, I think, in, in a lot of these interviews. And uh, uh, so, you know, all that aside, he definitely, I would say, schooled, uh, destroyed corporate media. And so let's, uh, let's take a look at this first one where CNN is, uh, is kind of credulously repeating some of UPS's talking points, and let's see how Sean O'Brien reacts. Um, from the UPS, they put out a statement, the Teamsters have stopped negotiating despite historic proposals that build on our industry-leading pay. Refusing to negotiate creates significant unease among employees and customers and threatens to disrupt the U.S. economy. You say to that what? That statement is compelling but highly inaccurate. UPS chose to walk away, and if there is a strike, it's going to be UPS striking themselves. I'll I'll stop there for just a second. Yeah, and that's you know uh, uh, that's a, a really important point to emphasize that, and and we know of course that 
there's no reason for the Teamsters to walk away from the table uh, if there's still movement happening. So there's absolutely no reason not to believe uh, the Teamsters side of the story that UPS is the one that walked away from the negotiating table. Um, I think that even though they did sign an NDA saying that they're not going to um, you know, discuss specifics, I think that the issues are pretty clear, and it, it, is, it is pretty clear uh, kind of the ballpark that UPS needs to be in for the Teamsters uh, to come to a tentative agreement on economics, which is the last remaining part of this contract. And so uh, the idea that the Teamsters walked away from these negotiations, um, the idea that they would have done that while movement was still happening is just really silly. Um, so uh, let's start back uh, uh, from there. Does this in some way hurt the uh, drivers and those preloaders uh, ultimately? We know after the, the last strike, there was a loss of some of the business that was not uh, reclaimed. There are some uh, experts and analysts in the field who say that maybe UPS will get 70% back of its business, but maybe not all of it. And of course, that would require potentially fewer preloaders, fewer drivers. And then that comes back to your, your Teamsters members. Well, UPS, whatever they choose to do, if they choose to do the right thing and concede to the demands, will be fine. But if they don't, that's a self-inflicted wound that they're going to have to shoulder the uh, burden of that. And look, like anything else, UPS, there's good times and bad times. Um, this volume will come back. There'll be need to hire more people. So any, any negative impact on this is going to be self-inflicted by UPS. And it won't impact your members? It could, but it's going to be a short-term impact. Yeah, so I, I really appreciated uh, Sean O'Brien's responses there, um, and and the framing there is is absolutely completely right, and it, that that he put forward, um, and it always is incredibly frustrating to me when the onus is always placed by the media onto workers, right? They never that you will not see on CNN or MSNBC. Uh, and certainly not Fox News, Carol Tomei in this seat saying, how bad are you, you know, are you not worried about the effect that this is going to have on consumers? Why don't you just give the Teamsters what they're asking for? Why are you not, you know, why are you willing to hurt your employees for all of this? Do you not think that you're asking for too much when you're wanting to make more profits than you have ever made in the history of your company? They made record-breaking profits in 2022. Why do you think it's okay, Carol Tomei, the CEO of UPS, to ask for even more than that in 2023? Why do you think that it's okay after a record profit-setting year, record-setting profit year, to ask for even more from your Teamster drivers? Because remember, we saw that their counterproposal leaked, the UPS counterproposal. They had as one of their proposals, I mean, the idea of it is just, it's absurd, it's a joke, it's an, it's an insult. One of their counterproposals was to cut the top driver pay from $40 an hour to $30 an hour. A 25% pay cut for drivers at the, top, at the top end of the scale after they made more profits than ever in the history of the company. You know, that's the kind of stuff that they're putting out there, but they are not being asked... Do you think you're asking for too much? So it's important to put that into perspective. Um, and, and uh, you know, let's take a look at Bloomberg asking the same question. Are you worried about the damage this is going to do to the economy? Are you worried you're asking for too much? Let's listen to this on Bloomberg. 
There is a deadline looming. If come August 1st, there is a strike. Is Teamsters not fearful of the potential economic repercussions of that? Couldn't that come back to hurt the very same workers that you were trying to get a better deal for? Look, in 1997, UPS took the same position with the part-timers, and the Teamsters struck them nationwide. For 15 look, days? 15 days. And look, like anything else, every time there's a situation like a strike, there's you know short-term pain for a long-term game. UPS is the best in the business. The customers pay for a service. Our Teamster members provide the best service. We know there's going to be a little bit of uh, pain in the beginning, but UPS is good at recovering and reco recouping that volume. And we're confident we have to take a stand now. We have to. And taking a stand is the only way that the Teamsters have the some of the best industry wages and best in uh, best in the industry healthcare. Uh, it's because they have in the past went on strikes, and so the idea that going on strike in and of itself is going to be harmful uh, for the very members that they're they're trying to protect um, is is you know it, it's silly. That's what you have to do to maintain to and and to get more. But that's not what you're going to hear on on you know some of this corporate media. And so one of the other talking points that that UPS is really putting out there is that these workers make you know the best in the industry pay, and so therefore they deserve a pay cut, or they deserve you know they don't deserve any more. We deserve all the increased profits. That's the argument that they're making. Um, and so. Here is on CNN again the uh, the host talking about just how much money package car drivers make. Um, you uh, acknowledged in your Senate testimony that the starting salary for some of those drivers ninety three thousand dollars a year uh, at the top of the industry. So people who are at home hearing that UPS might be the workers might be going on strike and they're already at the top of the heap starting for this, they, they question why. You tell those folks who are going to be inconvenienced what? Well, look, I'll tell them this simply. UPS didn't give 93000 a year out of the kindness of their heart. We've been fighting for decades and decades. We didn't, we didn't get anything for UPS. We had to fight for it. UPS drivers and preloaders and all part-timers provide tremendous amount of service. UPS is making record profits, $100 billion. They doubled their profits. They needed to take, take care of those people and stop worrying about uh, Wall Street and focus on the people at Main Street. That's exactly right, and that's a good message that uh – uh, that you know, the only reason they have that is because they've been willing to fight. It's not because UPS has been so generous, and we can see that from the fact that UPS is asking for pay cuts. Is asking for pay cuts right now amid uh, record-setting profit, and so the fact that you know uh, that the Teamsters had to fight is very important to emphasize. But it is also important to contextualize that ninety-three thousand number, and he did that uh, in his appearance on Bloomberg when they brought that up. The full timers, uh, they make a great wage. UPS is out there telling people, well, they make $93,000 a year. But they're not telling you they have to work 60 or 65 hours uh, a week to make that wage. So there's a lot of issues. But at the end of the day, we've got the majority of the, a majority of the um, negotiations have been completed. It's strictly down economics. They know what we want, they know what we need. So there you go. Uh, $93,000 a year uh, would be a great wage if you only had to work a standard work week of 40 hours. <laughs> 40 hours. Uh, but $93,000 a year to work 65, 60, 70 hours a week, uh, that's like, yeah, you know, 
Uh, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. You'd have to pay me more than that to get me to work 70 hours a week. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so it, it's just like, it's okay. It's okay. For 60, 70 hours a week, $93,000 is okay. It, that's my view. Um, so uh, another thing that they're putting out there that is really, I mean, just seems to me to be just totally false is the uh, is the rate of the part-time drivers. We just actually heard earlier in the program from a part-time driver who's been there for 13 years and makes $20, $21 an hour. 13 years, $20, $21 an hour. And UPS is telling Bloomberg that their full-time drivers are making $39 an hour and their part-timers are making $35 an hour. Let's hear how Sean O'Brien reacts to that have class, but this is important when we talk about wages. For example, a full-time employee at UPS makes about a $39 an hour. A part-time employee makes about $5 uh, less. What's also important is health and safety was coming up. This is going to be a common theme among labor conversations across the country, across industries, but working conditions like air conditioning and trucking, for example, or simply how many days you get off. But again, at the core of it comes are these workers being paid in line with the profits that UPS is making? Bloomberg's Kriti Gupta joining us from World Headquarters in New York. We thank you for the reporting, Kriti. Let's get more perspective now on the UPS negotiations. Uh, from the union's perspective, joining us here at the table, Sean O'Brien, General President of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Sean, it's great to have you here. Thank you for joining us at what appears to be a critical moment. You tweeted, or the Teamsters uh, tweeted at least, at about 4.30 in the morning on Wednesday. After marathon sessions... UPS negotiations collapsed. You're right around 4 a.m. UPS walked away from the bargaining table after presenting an unacceptable offer to the Teamsters that did not address members' needs. UPS spoke with uh, Bloomberg about this and says, we have not walked away, and the union has a responsibility to remain at the table. When will you talk next? Whenever they pick up the phone and call us. I mean, their, their uh, story is compelling but highly inaccurate. Um, we were talking about economics, and we did make a lot of progress on a lot of those issues that were talked about earlier. Um, but when it came down to part-timers, I'll tell you what. If they're saying that part-timers make $5 less than $39 an hour, I'll sign that deal right now. That's not true. Our average part-timer is making starting wage rates about $16.50 per hour. Um, you've got people living in poverty. Those are poverty wages. A lot of members in the big cities that work two or three jobs, especially the part-timers, um, uh, uh, are on subsidized housing, food stamps. So it's up to UPS to make this right, and they should tell the real story. Okay, so you said you would sign a deal at $5 less per hour. Is that your bare minimum? What's the line here? For well, the if they were going to pay $35 an hour for a part-timer, I definitely would do that. That's what they're saying. That's not the truth. I mean, they do provide great benefits, but they provide them only because we mandate them. We've fought decades upon decades to negotiate superior conditions in these industries, and now it's time. I mean, look, think about the pandemic. You know, you see a UPS driver, the men and women that deliver in your neighborhoods, everybody yeah. loves them. Um, but the unsung heroes are the ones that load those trucks that went to work. Um, and UPS had record profits, $100 billion. Is that number that... Yeah, absolutely. That's really important to understand um, when they're talking about these part-time rates. And so, you know, if UPS is going out there and saying our part-timers make $35 an hour, Sean O'Brien is calling the bluff and saying, okay, well, uh, give us that contract and we'll sign it today. So uh, so those are that's where we're at right now with the... Uh, uh, 
with these uh, uh, Team Sue negotiations, and that's some of the stuff that's at stake. Uh, so we're obviously going to be updating y'all every week. And uh, next week, we're actually going to be talking to Teddy Ostro from the Upsurge podcast uh, to kind of contextualize this situation. And in particular, we're going to get some history on the 1997 strike, learn what the issues were there and what Teamsters were able to win. Um, so definitely check us out next week. We're going to go ahead and uh, talk to bring Dave Zirin on to the show. Dave Zirin is a prolific author of acclaimed books. He is the sports editor for The Nation and the host of a new show for uh, The Real News Network, which is a friend of the show. Maximilian Alvarez, uh, the editor-in-chief there, is uh, has been a guest multiple times on this show. We've been a guest on his show multiple times. Uh, so really great to see uh, Dave and Max partnering. Uh, Dave, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Uh, really, I enjoy your work. I've been a longtime reader, so it's a joy to have you on the show. Uh, but for those who are not familiar with you, could you introduce yourself and just tell folks a little bit about what you do? Yeah, my name's Dave Zirin. I'm the sports editor over at The Nation magazine, uh, their first sports editor. They didn't usually used to do that until I started doing it low the many years ago. <laughs> And I write books about the politics of sports. The most recent one is called The Kaepernick Effect. It's about how young people uh, took knees in the aftermath of Colin Kaepernick doing so as a part of resistance against racism and police violence. Uh, I'm a big believer in labor, so it's an honor to be on this show. Uh, I do a lot of study of sports labor, which of course is profoundly distorted uh, relative to the rest of the labor movement, but still invaluable. It has that weird contradictory space there. Right. between something very important and very weird. And I'm thrilled to be on the show to talk about these issues. Um, and, oh, by the way, I'm doing a TV show on the Real News Network called Edge of Sports, working with Max Alvarez, Kayla Rivara, and I'm having an absolute blast. Yeah, tell us more about that, because uh, as Jacob mentioned earlier, we are big fans of the Real News Network, big fans of Maximilian Alvarez. Uh, you know, we consider him, you know, comrades and friends. And so... Uh, talk to us more about this new show. Really, I'm really excited about this collaboration. Well, I am too, because I've been doing pilots for shows for, God, for, for, for years, for like a decade. And um, I've had a very specific idea of the kind of show that I'd want to do. And that has proven to be antithetical to a lot of networks, sports channels. I mean, you name. Oh, we wouldn't know anything about that at all. <laughs> So you know what it's like then to sit in a pitch meeting, say something you believe in and have people say, we would love to have you if only you do the same thing except without what you believe in. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. You know, like I've had people say, you know, the movie Barton Fink, which is, by the way, down low, a great political movie. Yes, um, the Coen Brothers film, great political movie. Um, and uh, th there's this great scene, though, where, where the Hollywood executive says to Barton Fink, the socialist playwright, he says, yeah, we, we don't want all the worker stuff, but we want that Barton Fink feeling. <laughs> and that that feeling is what I've been asked for a few times without actually getting into the political weeds. And I love doing the show because it's all political weeds. Mm. You know, that doesn't mean we don't take a step back and talk about it, but Every week I have on a guest and it could be from the sports world, could be from the political world. And the first show we had Demoris Smith, uh, as someone you are familiar with, the executive director, the former 
we have to say, executive director of the NFL Players Association. And, you know, Damaris wanted to call the show the exit interview. And we, we got in deep about what it's like to head up that, again, this word distorted, that very distorted union that is the NFL Players Association. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, so it's, it's just been a blast. I also I want to add that I do a segment every week called Ask a Sports Scholar, where I get someone on who's like a left sports academic and they speak about the research they're doing. And that's, I think, really fascinating as well. That's really cool. Uh, I, I'm all about it. I love that. Um, and I was actually going to yeah, ask you about that interview with, with Smith and the NFLPA, since there is this like transition now. Um, you know, and he, he was actually rumored to be a candidate for Secretary of Labor at one time, supposedly. Uh, and now the NFLPA has new leadership. And I'm curious, like, what's your take on that? And, and how, how do you think the NFLPA is going to move forward? Yeah, the new uh, leader is a guy named Lloyd Howell Jr. And he was a former, I believe the title was COO of Booz Allen. So, hmm. you know, it, it's not That's a pick I would have wanted um, at all. Um, it was done not by D. Smith, not by anybody else there. I mean, the, the way it works is that it's entirely done by the players. Uh, players do the interviewing, players do the voting. Players decide who the next person is. Damar Smith does not have a finger on this particular scale. And it's interesting because Damar Smith didn't come from a labor background either. And this is a complicated thing, but I have a lot of respect for what Damar Smith was able to do. While a lot of people sort of of my ilk are very uh, critical. Hmm. And of course I'm critical the way I think we should be critical of all, you know, union leaders, union bureaucrats, Right. You know, I was listening to what you were talking about with UPS, and, and I, I agree with that entirely with regard to the Teamsters. You know, it's got to be, you know, with the workers always, with the union leaders sometimes, you right. know, and, <laughs> and with the bosses never. <laughs> there <Right>. you go. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're preaching our gospel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had a feeling that would be met well. Uh, and and Damaris is, is, you know, with the union leaders sometimes, but... I also think he was put in a very difficult situation, not the least of which because he came at the job uh, as a uh, big time lawyer, as somebody who worked with Eric Holder in the Justice Department, as someone who was a federal prosecutor. And this new guy, COO of Booz Allen, to me, that just doesn't you know, check the boxes of what you really want to see uh, mm. in terms of who's heading up your union. But, you know, a lot of players are still are taken in by something that Demora Smith is very disavowed of, that if you just have somebody like a former COO of Booz Allen, that's the sort of thing the franchise owners are going to respect. And, you know, they're going to sit down and go down to business. They don't understand. They don't they're not seeing. And part of this is because, you know, the typical NFL career is only three and a half years. So. Believe me, in, in talking and interviewing DeMorris for these last, I think, 14 years, I mean, and that's how long our very, like, regular political relationship has been in, um, getting institutional memory in a union where the average membership is three and a half years long is extremely challenging. Mm. So if imagine if there have been people who've been NFL players for 30 years. I know that's absurd given what their bodies would look like after playing 30 years at the NFL, not to mention their minds, but you would have people who would say, 
wait a minute, we need an adversarial leader. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what Demora said in our interview. I said, what did you wish you'd known when you first took this job as executive director of the NFLPA? And he said, I wish I wasn't so naive as to think that the people I was talking to believed in the law. Mm. I mean, that's how he put it. Like that yeah. starkly believed in the law. And some of that has to do with the antitrust exemption that the NFL operates. Some of that has to do with that. These are just very scuzzy people Mm -hmm. and they they will go to any lengths to mess over the players. And Damaris thought he was going in, you know, as I think a lot of unions sort of uh, repeat this rhetoric, but Damaris was going in feeling like, oh, this is going to be about cooperation. This is about labor management cooperation. And here he is sitting down with some of the most viciously anti-union people, people who think in principle there should not even be a union and expecting to negotiate with those folks in good faith. So I I, I have very, very apprehensive feelings about this new leader, Lloyd Howell. Mm. And, um, you know, but but you know what it's like. It's show and prove, you know, not going to judge him by his past, judge him by what he does. But the tea leaves aren't great. For sure. And, and you know, uh, we know that you've got a heart out at 1140. We want to be respectful of that. And, and uh, we, we want to talk some about the... Oh, can I tell you why I have a heart out? Sure. Just so you can have a big laugh. All right. I have to pick my son up from high school football practice. Hey, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yes. I am extremely aware of the attendant irony. <laughs> well, uh, that that's great. I'm I'm sure that uh, when I have kids, that, that they're going to want to play uh, uh, play sports. So, um, and and Adam is already doing some of that. I've already lived the softball dad <laughs> life. Um, yeah, believe me. And you know, so so I want to talk some about uh, we we want to talk some about these uh, the below the NFL unionization efforts. The USFL recently unionized. There's talk of NCAA unionization. The XFL had a union vote with the Steelworkers, which is where, which is who USFL unionized with. Um, but interestingly, they voted it down. And I saw on Twitter, we were, we were the first to, to break that news. And so our tweet got a lot of traction, particularly among XFL players, and there were a lot of XFL players tagging the NFLPA, saying things like, uh, you know, it's not that we don't want to unionize, we just want to unionize with the right folks, and then they tagged NFLPA. So I'm interested in, in your thoughts about that, but before we go, while we're on the um, the the NFL, I wonder if you think that the NFL Players Association might, could learn something from some of the graduate worker unions that have been successful because that that you mentioned about the turnover rate in union membership is something that virtually no union has to deal with except graduate workers and there are uh, graduate workers recently who have been going through a wave of unionization and a lot of them have been winning excellent first contracts so i wonder if you think that there's any opportunity for collaboration and and learning there yeah, and also, you know, I followed the situation at Rutgers very closely, mm-hmm. where as part of the deal, they were able to wait, raise the wage floor, mm. which of course creates terrific solidarity where there are usually divisions in a university strike. If you show that you're really looking out and fighting for the people who need it the most, right. I'd love to see what you're talking about. Um, I, I want the NFLPA to expand its, uh, its mandate and be front and center. And it has been, you got to say with the NCAA, like they've 
provided attorneys, they've provided advice, they've provided uh, you know, friendly affidavits to any court efforts, uh, the, the, but it's not as hands-on a role as a lot of people would want to see who've done the NCAA organizing. Like, and I think what I, what I would wanna get from the grad workers uh, union is just how expansive um, a lot of those grad students, I mean, you should correct me if I'm wrong about this, but have been um, organized by the UAW, correct? Mm -hmm. The UAW um, and the UE, I think, are the leading grad worker unions. And the right UE. Now. Yeah, so you've got electrical workers and auto workers, you know, and obviously they've been doing this for years, but bringing in people from other industries and using their know-how and organizing skills to do so. I want to see the NFLPA do that a lot more. Mm. Um, and hopefully... Hopefully we'll see. I mean, this is the problem. And I, I don't want to just talk about the problems because I believe in labor and I believe every over every problem can be overcome. But you, you've run into an issue with NFL players who don't want the union mm. with that broader mission. And one thing the NFLPA is very, very conscious of is, you know, they, they care a little less about retired players speaking out against them and their benefits, mm. partly because it's something that they're they're used to at this point, and they've increased the benefits pretty dramatically. If you notice, that's been quieted somewhat in terms of the retired players in the last couple of years. The last contract increased their, their give out in a pretty big way. But a lot of the players feel like you're spreading us way too thin. And the NFLPA does not want the players speaking out against the union. So mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like to really see them have a, a broader mandate and see themselves having a broader mandate because, you know, they're part of the AFL-CIO yeah. and, um, and Major League Baseball looks like it's going in that direction as well. I think it's great for sports unions to be part of the AFL-CIO. Um, it just increases what they're able to do. So hopefully we'll see a broader mandate with the new leadership. I'd like to see it. Hope so. Yeah. Uh, hope springs eternal. In the uh, in the last four minutes, we've got you. What are, what are some of your thoughts on uh, some of these campaigns to uh, unionize uh, uh, the uh, the leagues and and the collegiate athletes under the NFL? Profoundly important, way overdue, hmm. and you're starting to see like the outrage and the and the fainting couch reaching and the pearl clutching. <laughs> of a lot of uh, NCAA and university leaders. Like we can't treat these revenue producing athletes like workers. Right. They don't want to be workers, they're students. Yeah. He said, it's outrageous to even consider them workers. The worst argument is that, um, and they're making this in a legal setting, that 75 years of precedent mm -hmm. is enough to tell us that these are not workers. It's like, are you kidding me? Precedent. There was also precedent around the Washington uh, football team name, mm, right. but they changed that. They're precedent on a lot of things that we got to right. change. And also we're living in a country where certain precedents that we held dear have been overturned by this Supreme Court like they were nothing. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to hear anybody from that, 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 that group of people trying to protect their own power and privilege talking about precedent. Yeah, there's been 75 years of injustice. Thank you for pointing that out. Appreciate <laughs> it. Right. Um, yeah. And, and one of the things that um, that's being objected to um, by by the good guys, by the good people, is this term student athlete and finally putting that in the graveyard where it belongs. That's a made up legal term yeah. meant to justify basically not paying them. 
um, it was actually created when a player died on the field and his wife mm. tried to sue for workers' comp. And wow. they said, you're not a worker, you're a student athlete. And so they, they enshrined that as a legal definition to prevent waking, paying workers' comp to a widow. Wow. So, I had no idea. Yeah. So that, that, that's your starting point <laughs> for right. the people that we're dealing with because they are workers. I mean, we could say they shouldn't be workers, you know, they're students, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you can say lots of things. You can say you don't believe in gravity when you fall out of an airplane. It doesn't matter. They are workers. And so if they are workers, just by objective reality, then they really do need to be unionized because they are held in such a position of powerlessness with regards to working conditions, with regards to health care. I mean, let alone pay. We're talking about just mm -hmm. being able to prevent injury. And the structure is so authoritarian that to me, a union could not come too soon. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think interestingly, you know, we said with the bosses never, but uh, Nick Saban, of all people, has come out and, and been, you know, I, I think tentatively supportive of a NCAA union. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, uh, uh, that could that's lend a, some credibility. I think that's a big <clears throat> damn deal, especially yeah. down here. Yeah, and I and you know, and Saban, I'll, I'll call him more managerial class mm -hmm. than a boss <laughs> for the purposes of this discussion. <laughs> but um, really, I, I, um, more from the question of power than his mm -hmm. unbelievable salary than anything else. But I really wonder if there's some sort of causal connection between Nick Saban being one of the few college coaches and doing this in Alabama, just a huge deal. Just to really try to step up after George Floyd was murdered in 2020. I wondered the same thing. Because, you know, a lot of coaches, particularly in the South, but not exclusively, hello, Jim Harbaugh, mm -hmm. uh, came down hard on players for even talking mm -hmm. about doing something, even talking about it. They were disciplined. And here's Nick Saban marching with players. Um, I forget if it was from or to a Confederate statue. But it was part of trying to uh, get the statue torn down. Now, I'm sorry, but that takes, you know, some real guts. Yeah, it does. And I mean, you know, and we, we know as labor people, and we, we, I, we, we all agree that ideas do have the capacity to change and struggle. And who knows, maybe that, maybe that jarred a thing or two in old Nick's head. I mean, I, I certainly love at least thinking that. Same, same here, same here. Well, I know we've got to get you out of here, but Dave, I really, really appreciate your your time, and uh, we'd love to have you back on, and and really looking forward to a lot of uh, success with the new show. Just you know, keep up the great work. Thank you, and folks can check out the show on the Real News Network. You can find it on YouTube very easily. We air new shows Wednesday at seven p.m. This week's show, I'm so psyched. We're going to have Dr. Harry Edwards on, uh, the most well famous, all that stuff, sports scholar and the history of sports scholars. I mean, we're talking about somebody who helped organize the 68 Olympic protests and somebody who was a counselor to Colin Kaepernick uh, 50 wow. years later. That, that's a hell of a run. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. That's great. Awesome. Right. It's going to be awesome. And I would love to come back to the show if possible. Uh, Absolutely. Hopefully when my son isn't, uh, you know, texting me and whining. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Dave, appreciate it. Thank Have you so one. much. Have a good one. Thanks, y'all.
All right, that was great. Uh, Dave Zirin, sports editor of The Nation, host of the new show, Edge of Sports, for The Real News Network. Check it out. New episodes Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm thrilled about that <clears throat> collaboration, really. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's great, uh, and I love when you know my passions intersect. I'm the yep. bigger sports fan here between the two of us. Uh, but, yeah, big fan of Dave's work and appreciate his appearance. And uh, I totally agree in regards to college football player unionization. Um, for those of you who don't know, the NLRB did issue a complaint recently where they stated flat out they believed that the players are employees and should be treated as such, and that would open the door for unionization. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And uh, like you said, Jacob, I, I appreciate Nick Saban for uh, being on the right side of history here. Roll Tide. That's right. Roll Tide. <laughs> um <laughs> So we've got a phone number. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That's 844-899-8857 if you've got anything to add. Um, And uh, uh, so one of the other big labor stories, there's basically like three really big kind of national stories that have penetrated the consciousness as far as labor goes, and that is uh, the Teamsters and UPS, which uh, we have very much been seeing in our YouTube analytics, <laughs> but also the WGA strike and Starbucks. And so we've got updates for the uh, latter two in addition to Teamsters and UPS. And so uh, let's take a look at the WGA strike. And the WGA strike is, uh, well, I said I had updates. There's not really a whole lot of updates. Uh, the, the, the thing is, is basically in the same place that it's been for about two months now. Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. I believe it's been, they've been on strike for almost two months. Uh, no movement, at least from what we can tell in the media. Um, Adam Conover has been making the rounds on different shows. He also did a panel, did a webinar with the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, which is a project of the DSA and UE, uh, where he was talking about the strike and dropped some really interesting knowledge that I did not know. I did not realize this, but he said that under the NLRA, um, you have a right as an individual, even though under Taft-Hartley there is a prohibition on secondary strikes and secondary boycotts uh, by unions and organizations that are not directly involved in the labor dispute, you still, under the NLRA, have the individual right not to cross a picket line, regardless of what your contract says. Oh. And I did not realize that. Uh, and so your union could not necessarily collectively decide. Yes, to but boycott your union to, could to strike. But you could mm-hmm. inform all of your members exactly. of their individual rights they have. Huh. Yeah, and you can't be disciplined for that. It's illegal to be disciplined uh, for exercising your right as an individual to honor picket lines, which is how actually the writers have been able to shut down productions. Uh, in Hollywood and New York. Uh, They've had IATSE folks, they've had actors, uh, they've had directors turn around and refuse to work, refuse to cross the picket line, as is apparently their individual right under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, And so that's why, at least for the writers, the picket lines have been so important in... um, in keeping up the strike and making it as effective as possible. So that was a, a really cool piece of information that I am glad I have now. Um, 
And, uh, uh, but I wanted to bring up the strike to be able to talk about this. Um, it's been a couple of weeks ago now that this happened, but an Apple executive did an interview, an anonymous interview with an online media outlet called On Your All Your Screens. It, uh, the name of the outlet is All Your Screens. I've never heard of it before, but it sounds kind of like a techie thing. Um, talks about tech news or whatever. So uh, an anonymous Apple TV Plus executive talked about the strike and talked about streaming. And he really like uh, just, I mean, just the mask just fell off. It was, uh, you know, totally um, really some gross stuff that he was saying about the writers. Um that really is, is, I mean, is exactly the kind of stuff that we're saying on the show every week, but it's not something that you expect people to admit. And so Kim Kelly uh, screen capped some of the stuff on Twitter. And here's one of the more, uh, uh, one of the crazier quotes. Uh, the question from all your screens is, we're a bit more than a month into the WGA strike. What is your sense on how it's going from the studio side. And the anonymous Apple executive said, to be clear, I'm not part of the direct conversations or I don't have any direct responsibility on negotiating strategy, but I do have pretty good perspective on where we are as a company. Like most of the people aren't C-suite management I am sympathetic to a lot of the arguments put forth by the writers. I think the current mini-room situation has had a real impact on the future of our industry, and we definitely need to figure out a way to train young writers. That being said, this is all about money. Any streaming platform is looking for cost savings anywhere they can be found. Is it coming out of the writers' pockets? For sure. But it's not personal, this guy assures us. It's not personal. Oh, well, huh. well since well, it's not personal, case. oh, well, well, they just take my money then if it's not personal. That, that makes it all better. Uh, it's not personal. This isn't a matter of not wanting to pay writers what they're worth, but when we are trying to watch budgets, you cut anywhere you can. And the truth is that includes writers and other support staff. Which gets back to my point about the strike. The only way writers will get more money or time or anything else is by getting what they want into a contract. Um, yeah, so really crazy stuff. Here's another one. The question from the media site says, how effective are the WGA memes that contrast the pay of top executives with the rate spent on writers? The Apple executive says, it's a fine PR move, but it doesn't move the dial in negotiations. Media companies don't see the world that way. You could cut the CEO pay in half, but that doesn't mean the money will end up in the pockets of writers. This isn't a situation where the streaming companies don't appreciate the value of writing in the content ecosystem. We do, but we will pay the absolute minimum that we can. I see people online blaming streaming for all of this, but this is how all businesses work. When a company moves its factory to Mexico or its customer service functions to Costa Rica, it's not personal. It's not personal. It's, uh, it's not because companies' executives hate their employees or don't value them. It's just a simple profit-loss equation. And that's the case here. Streaming platforms are going to pay the least amount they can for everything 
riders included. I don't mean to sound like a dick, but riders tend to be smart and love what they do, but they can also think they're the center of the fucking universe. I know this strike is personal for them. I get it. I'd feel the same way, but this is all just numbers for the studios. <coughs> What's the least amount we can get away with paying for everything? Mm. Uh, yeah. Wow. Really, really gross stuff. Yep. But uh, surprisingly frank. Surprisingly frank, indeed. Uh, which is, you know, I mean, that's what we're saying. You know, that's that's like, that's the song and dance that we're doing every week here on this show is that, you know, uh, they don't care about you. Your bosses don't care about you. Company loyalty is bullshit. And so you shouldn't respect it and you should take what you can uh, and get it into a contract. Uh, you know, go in, do your job. And then go home and don't think about it anymore. Because they're not thinking about you other than how much they can extract from you. So, you know, it's not personal. It's not personal. That's the, It's not it's, personal on right. our side either, right? Right. <laughs> we are selling our labor in exchange it's a, for our yeah. life. It's just a business decision. It's just a business decision. I remember uh, <laughs> this, fella talk, this fella that I used to go to church with, he had this story about how he left a job for one where he made more money and his boss was chastising him. And the funny thing is, is this, it, it wasn't even in like a care industry. You know, I mean, this guy wasn't a therapist. He wasn't a nurse. He wasn't a doctor. He wasn't a teacher or anything like this where you are, are working for a nonprofit, saving the world. He was working in like a, 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 a machine shop, <laughs> you know, so like, the idea that the boss would say this, but his manager was like chastising him. And one of the things that the, the last thing that he said was, you're just in this for the money, aren't you? Like, yes, I'm not working in a machine shop because I'm passionate about machining. <laughs> you know, I'm that's what you do at home, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, what a, what a dumbass. That is wild. What a stupid thing to say to a guy in a machine shop. Of all places. You're just trying to pay your bills, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> you think you're just trying to make a living, huh? Yeah. Um, Crazy. Yeah, because it's like, no disrespect to the machine shop or any where you work, but, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all selling our time, our energy, our brain power, our, our muscle. We're selling that in exchange for some kind of wage and benefit. And we hope it's enough to, to scrape a living, you yep. know, together. That's 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 just the life for for the majority of people in this country and across this world. Uh, and that's why we have a lot in common. Exactly. Exactly. Um, have we already did you did you ever find out if we had talked about this IATSE stuff? I'm not we, sure. Maybe we did. I'm not sure. But we can just we can just mention it just really sure. quickly, and that's that, and that we, we don't have to do a whole thing about it uh, because I, I think maybe we talked about it before, but I'm not totally sure. But the Sagehand Union, <clears throat> they earmarked two million dollars in support of members affected by the ongoing uh, WGA strike, and so like we said, the IATSE IATSE is not uh, in a strike right now, but uh, they uh, they can honor picket lines 
and sometimes uh, the production is shut down or doesn't happen because of the writer's strike. Um, and so the union has set aside $2 million to be distributed through industry-recognized charities to support IATSE members in need during the ongoing writer's strike. <clears throat> so really cool stuff uh, from IATSE um, and important to support your members um, and, and allow them to show solidarity with the writers as their own. Right, story. absolutely. I mean, that's what you have to do. We have to support each other. And if we're going to display solidarity, as so many of uh, my IATSE can have done, uh, we've actually act, we really absolutely have to support them and and, and provide material assistance. So yeah, I really mm -hmm. appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the latest in Starbucks news. Uh, Starbucks is like I said, one of those <laughs> stores. And then I see that we got a caller. So after we hit this, we will bring the caller on the line. Uh, so uh, sit tight if you are able to. But uh, so Starbucks, this is another one of those labor stories that has really kind of captured people's imagination. I think probably because uh, similar to the UPS workers, Starbucks workers, we see these people every day or, you know, we see these people a lot. I don't go to Starbucks every day, but I go to Starbucks sometimes. <clears throat> and so you're, you're familiar with these people. So maybe that's one of the reasons that it's kind of penetrated the consciousness of, of folks. But uh, on July the 5th, the union put out uh, a statement saying that over, at this point, over 3,500 Starbucks workers at 150 stores, uh, more than 150 stores across, uh, across the United States, across nine days nationwide, led the biggest strike in Starbucks history. Partners deserve better pay, better hours, better benefits, and better treatment in the workplace. And our union is fighting to make this company truly live up to its values, especially after their hypocritical treatment of LGBTQIA plus workers. Thank you to everyone for your support and love while we stand up to demand Starbucks bargain with us in good faith. Head over to sbworkersunited.org to organize your store and learn more about what we're demanding and why we went on strike. Also, there are two stores that are organized across the state of Alabama. Um, and of course, if you are a Starbucks barista listening to us here in Alabama or anywhere across the country, um, you're, of course, free to reach out to us. And if you're in Alabama, we can uh, uh, put you in touch directly with some of the other baristas and the local organizer uh, with Starbucks Workers United. We are uh, absolutely happy to do that, but of course you can uh, go to start, uh, sbworkersunited.org uh, if you, um, you know, if if you're more comfortable with that. But if you're familiar with us and, and that, and it would make you more comfortable, you can obviously reach out to us. Another big update in the, on the Starbucks front is, uh, you know, you'll remember that we talked about uh, Starbucks closing three stores in Ithaca after all three had voted to unionize. I think that Ithaca was the first city in the country to have every single Starbucks location to be unionized, and uh, they closed every single location in Ithaca. And <clears throat> amazingly, amazingly, Starbucks... Uh, has said that this is just a coincidence. Uh, it is not, <laughs> it's not because these workers unionize and uh, practiced their um, <clears throat> constitutional right, rights to speech and association. Um, but, uh, but this was, this was just a, uh, you know, it was just because of, you know, uh, issues with the stores that had absolutely nothing to do with worker organization, uh, nothing to, you know, absolutely in no part to, 
um, dissuade other workers from unionizing or anything like that. That's what Starbucks is saying, saying. But of course, you know, I mean, that's so silly. I can't, you know, if anybody believes that, I mean, you know, that's wild. I've got, you know, I've got oceanfront property in Tennessee to sell you. Um, and so uh, those, that intuition that you have, if you're not like a baby, that Starbucks did not just randomly close these unionized stores. That intuition that you have uh, has been uh, uh, verified by a U.S. National Labor Relations Board judge, Arthur Amchin. He wrote in his ruling last week that the shutdown of a store near Cornell University's campus, quote, was done in large part to discourage unionization efforts in Ithaca and elsewhere, end quote. He also said the star that Starbucks failed to prove that it would close the store absent its animus towards the pro-union employees who worked there. In his ruling, Amchin wrote that Starbucks repeatedly violated the National Labor Relations Act in Ithaca, including by punishing union supporters and, quote, suggesting to an employee that it would continue to violate the act regardless of what the NLRB decided, end quote. Along with the reopening of the College Avenue location and reinstating terminated employees with back pay, he wrote that the company should be forced to post a notice about workers' rights at its cafes throughout the country. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Obviously, uh, Starbucks is still disputing this, and they will, pro uh, they will almost certainly appeal this to a U.S. district judge, which, uh, which is going to take another six months, another year or something. I mean, we are now probably probably almost a year since the since this location closed. I mean, this has been going on for a very long time, and this is, you know, it's indicative of how toothless and how slow the process is for unionization. And that's why it's so important or the I'm sorry, that's uh indicative of how little teeth and how slow the process is for enforcing your rights through the law through the government, through the NLRB. And that emphasizes the importance of unionization, of building power in the workplace uh, so that you don't actually have to rely on the law. Because if we saw a critical mass of Starbucks stores um, unionize, where they have a significant impact on the company's bottom line internationally and nationally, uh, then, that is then they're not going to need the NLRB they're not going to need the NLRB. They can just negotiate in a contract that, okay, we're going to reopen these stores. We're going to give these people uh, their jobs back with this amount of back pay, and then they can drop all the charges and everybody can go forward. That's what happens in contract negotiations all the time, in fact. There are disputes between employees and employers in union workplaces across the country all the time that uh, because the legal process takes so long, <clears throat> you can just go to the next contract bargaining session and resolve it there say okay you know uh uh we're, we're gonna do this and and so that's what workers would have the power to do without asking for permission from the government if more starbucks uh, workplaces organize and so that's why it's important to organize because the more people that do the more power that you're gonna have um some background that was in Josh Idelson's piece in Bloomberg, uh, which, you know, interestingly, Josh Idelson is a very good labor reporter for Bloomberg magazine, for Bloomberg or, uh, magazine or, or um, the website. 
Very good labor reporter. I've got a lot of respect for him. So he said that regional NLRB directors around the country have issued over 90 complaints accusing Starbucks of illegal anti-union tactics, including refusing to negotiate fairly, while judges and NLRB members have ordered reinstatement of 23 terminated activists. Complaints are considered by NLRB judges whose ruling can be appealed to labor board members in Washington, D.C. and from there into federal court. The agency has the power to order policy changes and back pay, but not to make companies pay punitive damages or hold executives personally liable for wrongdoing. So, uh, obviously going to keep an eye on that, um, but it's, you know... I mean, similar to the NLRB ruling related to Warrior Met last week that we talked about. It's great to see it. It's great to see it. Uh, but there's still not going to be any action on this for a long time to come. And that's why it's important that workers take, you know, uh, take matters into their own hands. And, and um, you know, so there we go. Like I said, we've got a caller in the queue. So, Adam, uh, let's bring them on and um, see what they have to say. Adam and Jacob, how are you? It's infinite. Infinite hey. content. Uh, thanks for calling in. And thanks we... for, for holding for a second there. We appreciate your patience. Absolutely. I did see, yeah, I did see that you sent us this, um, and, and I read this article about, and, and I think I saw it on Twitter. It's an insane story. We've been talking about child labor across the country, Um yeah, we've been talking about child labor across the country for for probably I mean for years now, uh, for at least a year and a half. It's been kind of a big story, and this is coming out of Wisconsin. A 16-year-old boy died Saturday from injuries sustained in an industrial accident at a sawmill. I mean, we were talking about deaths at sawmills. It was last Saturday. Saturday. Not not today. It was last Saturday. Yeah. Now, um, even Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles could have seen if you roll back child labor laws, this was going to be an inevitability, correct? Yeah, right. Absolutely. Now, yeah. uh, it's, I mean, I'm like, there. then there isn't Wisconsin the state that's going to okay 14-year-olds are serving alcohol? Yes. Yes, I believe so. Wisconsin is one of those states where uh, there are efforts to uh, lower the um, – child labor laws. So here in this article, it says the death comes amid a push over the last two years to loosen regulations governing what jobs minors can perform in the workplace. Lawmakers in 14 states, including Wisconsin, have proposed rolling back child labor laws, according to the Economic Policy Institute. So, you know, yeah, this is you know, this is why you don't do that, is because uh, it's never a good thing for a worker to die on the job. But it is it is made even more sad when it's a child. Yeah, and all because they don't want to pay uh, adults or deal with adults um, wanting to have uh, better condition, working conditions and mm -hmm. uh, better pay. This, yeah. this is just a tragedy. And if there is a way that the parents can sue the um, state legislature, state legislators who voted for this. I would be all for it because this is a direct consequence of this. Hmm. Uh, right. I, I wouldn't. I don't think anybody. Uh, the only thing that a child could do at a sawmill plant, in my opinion, is work the phones. Yeah, right. That's it. Nowhere yeah. near any uh, type of production. I mean, because mm -hmm. sawmill plants are already inherently dangerous. Uh, like 
you accidentally uh, get a spark lit in a sawmill plant while it's running, you can blow the whole plant up. But this uh, corporate greed, corporate greed, corporate greed. Now, there was another story I sent you all because you all know about Moms for Liberty, right? Yes. They decided they wanted to have their convention in Philly. So if you go check your – Go check your inbox on um, on Twitter, and Kim Kelly wrote a nice little um, review of how things went there. Mm-hmm. It did not go well for them. For the nation, in fact, actually. We were just talking to the sports editor. Um, but, yeah, she wrote a, a really good article for the nation uh, talking about the reception that they received in Philly. And uh, her reporting on it is that uh, it did not go great. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. Philly was not having it. Uh, Way to go, And, Philly. like, while they were out there trying to have their little speeches, they had, uh, like, a whole pride event, dance, dance-offs and uh, festivals out there. And the thing that annoyed me the most is that the police uh, showed up to give them, uh, the Mom for Liberty people, uh, comfort and aid and uh, escorts. I'm like, no, no, no. Oh, did we lose him? Did I? Did, did we lose him, or did I get lost? No, I, I, uh, Infinite, are you there? I think we may have lost Infinite content. I'm going to Rip. drop you and call back. You can call back. I don't know what happened there. But, uh, yeah, thanks for shouting that out. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's called Moms for Liberty Came to Philly. Philly came for them uh, by Kim Kelly at the Nation, and uh, yeah, shout out to Philly for the rude reception they gave Moms for Liberty. Uh, a friend of mine, comrade of mine, told me that one of those Moms for Liberty people are going to be speaking in Alabama soon. Uh, so I'm working to find out more details about that because, uh, yeah, not interested. Yeah, not interested one bit. Nope. Those people are bizarre creeps who are trying to destroy public education. Um, and that's about all I got to say about them. Speaking of now. people that want to destroy public education, uh, that James Lindsay guy is coming to Alabama in August. Are you familiar with James Lindsay? You may not be familiar because you're not online. Is that uh, is that being promoted by 1819 News? Yes. Okay. Maybe this is who, the fellow I'm thinking of. Because uh, isn't uh, Lindsay associated with Moms for Liberty? Uh, I or, think tangentially. Okay. I, I, think, I think so. I think but he has probably done, run in the same circles. They run in the same circles. His big shtick is, is very much like the uh, advocating for school privatization um, because the schools are just too woke um, and they're trying to trans the kids. That's Jesus, help them. Yeah. Help him specifically, yeah. please. Yeah. That's that's wrong. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, we should um, we should find out more details about that. <laughs> is he is he back on the line? Let's see. Uh, all right, Infinite, are you back? I'm back. I don't know what happened. I was just uh, what am I yapping? That thing. I'm a, I guess y'all are like uh, you're talking <laughs> too much. Let me just shut him down real quick. No, no, you went quiet there. I don't know what happened, but uh, yeah, we we left off. You were telling us about Monster Liberty with uh, Philly. 
Oh, yeah, uh, they got protested everywhere they were, and they tried to talk to some people, like, on platforms and down in um, Center City and got told exactly uh, what they can do because <laughs> Philly ain't having it. Uh, we're just not having it. Uh, I give them no peace, give them no quarter. That group, they put the 14 words on their page. Mm. After that, I'm like, they, they, like the um, SDLC has already uh, defined them as a hate group. So SCP, SDLC, for people that don't know, is Southern Poverty Law Center. They study and follow hate uh, groups and national uh, dangerous uh, groups around the country. Uh, so if SBLC says that they're they're a um, hate group, they are. Trust what you see because they, they do nothing. Like these Karens literally need to go get hobbies. Mm. And there was one last thing, and I'm going to get off the phone, and I'll let you all touch base about it. Ron DeSantis, because, you know, Ron DeSantis has to do things all the time, he signed a bill in Florida that is going to cut permanent alimony for spouses. There's a lot of um, older women who are all, now they're clutching their pearls. like, I can't believe that he's going to do that. It's going to, um, it's going to ruin me. Well, mm. uh, no, I need them to have that same energy that they kept about themselves when they supported him for the anti-immigrant bans and, um, and the... DEI bands and the uh, quote unquote woke bands and the book bands. Now we came for your money. Right. Now, uh, have consequences. Anyway, we'll talk later. Bye. All right. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Um, yeah. Um, did not know that about Ron DeSantis. I mean, of course, not surprised. Not surprised. Yeah. The dude is a creep uh, and seems intent on targeting like every possible group he can yeah. find. Right. Um, and so next is the divorced dads. I don't know. I, I imagine the divorced dads is like the core foundation of the DeSantis coalition. Oh, he's just gonna. He, he's gonna. Uh, so he, oh, he okay. So this them, isn't like he's he's. Poof. I don't know. I don't know that he could do that. That seems like his base. No, we'll I was meaning with the re reduction in alimony. Oh. That's he's he's coming for them and like reaching out to them oh. and say, hey, hey, you're you know, right. Yeah. I bet you so, because I mean, yeah, to me, it seems like that's probably his base. And yeah. so, uh, and that's like, that's one of the things, uh, another, middle you know, class, middle to upper class divorced dads. Yeah. Well, another, another phenomenon you may not be familiar with because you're not super online is that, is that there's this kind of red pill type community that has like come into prominence over the last couple of years. Um, that's. I mean, just really bizarre, but one of the big things that they talk about is how um, marriage is bad because um, women will just break up with you and steal your money. And this is what always happens, despite the fact that, like, what is it, 5% of divorced men <laughs> pay alimony? It's like not. Uh, seems like a lot of projection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely seems like a lot of projection. But yeah. you know, a lot of reactionary politics—that's what it boils down to a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, so hey, let's keep talking about uh, coffee, and let's head over to Tennessee. Where, uh, because Starbucks workers are not the only coffee workers that are unionizing. In fact, uh, coffee workers at local chains across the country are unionizing as well. Um, 
And in particular, there's a really big move in Nashville with the UFCW, um, who has a group called Coffee Workers of the South United that have unionized multiple locations in Nashville at this point um, and have been taking a lot of actions, including a strike, which has closed now multiple barista parlor and Three Brothers Coffee locations uh, for weeks because the workers have been on strike. So uh, Lonnie Lee Hood, who is, um, I, I would say they're a friend of the show. They have, I have attended some of their trainings um, and, uh, and you know, uh, definitely not as close with them as we are with some other people, but uh, they do a lot of good work. And uh, they wrote for the Tennessee Lookout, which is the Tennessee uh, State Newsroom Project, uh, kind of like their equivalent of our Alabama Reflector. They wrote, uh, multiple barista parlor locations and three brothers coffee remain closed after weeks of failed union negotiation efforts and unexplained terminations. Employees at both companies say baristas have major concerns about the coffee industry in Nashville because of multiple closures, terminations, and low or stolen wages. Golden Sound, a barista parlor location in the Gulch, closed almost two months ago now. Some employees were transferred to the Germantown location before all but three were fired without warning on June the 14th. A barista parlor worker said management attempted to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with staff in order to terminate them, but the group demanded to meet together. The three staff members who were not terminated quit in solidarity. The entire staff of the Hillsboro Village location also walked out, citing similar concerns about working condition, understaffing, wages, and job security. Kat Knoll, who has worked at Barista Parlor for a year and a half, says Lonnie Lee Hood, said workers have experienced hundreds of dollars in wage theft in just the last few months. Knoll said management promised to repay those wages, uh, but... This was in addition to hours being cut and company favorites being given better shift times and assignments, which Noel says puts stress on baristas trying to make ends meet. Shorter shifts mean slimmer paychecks. Uh, Three Brothers Coffee closed later on June the 13th, uh, which is the same day that Coffee Workers of the South United posted their decision to strike to the union's Instagram page. Uh, we, we covered that decision, I think, on the show. We covered something that they did. I think it was their decision to strike. All five employees are union members, and they say that management has not negotiated in good faith and will not increase wages to the to the requested $16 an hour. They've also been picketing outside the shop, and Paige Lemon, a Three Brothers barista for more than a year, said that paying $1,200 a month has always been hard, but it's been even more difficult on strike. Um, and just for uh, comparison, which we talked about last time, uh, the current living hourly wage for single adults in Nashville is 8 $18 an hour. Noel said she made $13 as a shift leader, but starting wages at Barista Parlor are $11 an hour, which is not very much anywhere, but certainly not very much in Nashville. Three brothers' uh, starting wages are even lower than that at $9.50 an hour, which is half of the county's living wage. Uh, and, um, and some coffee shops in Nashville have job listings between $16 and $25 an hour. So they are really kind of below the curve in Nashville. And the what's even more crazy about these groups of stores is that these are, uh, they call themselves, quote, third wave coffee shops, uh, which Lemon says 
means specialty coffee drinks, latte art, and an attention to detail uh, that prompted managers at Three Brothers to only hire baristas with experience, despite the low wages. So we're only going to pay you $9.50 an hour, but you have to have years of experience as a barista to get this amazing job. And so uh, Lemon says that third wave shops offer an elevated aesthetic uh, and workers who focus on getting a perfectly tamped espresso shot, the right percentages of caffeine, and creating an elevated atmosphere that's attractive to visitors and college students. So this is supposed to be like super duper fancy, you know. I mean, Starbucks, yeah, upscale stuff. And uh, often ringing up drinks more than $10 uh, per drink which is like as much as they make an hour. <laughs> one drink is how much they make in one hour. Crazy. Uh, Lemon says that owners should stop chasing an unsustainable third wave aesthetic if they aren't willing to properly invest in their business, uh, which is obvious. Lemon also said that there are people who are interested in that artisan work, but the owners are more interested in the popularity. You want a good cup of coffee, but don't want to give us training on how to do that. It's not third wave coffee anymore. It's it's confusing. If you want the product, like some of the other chain style shops are, make that clear. You're just churning out lattes. So while the union has gotten some negative comments online, both Noel and Lemon say regulars at the shops are supportive. So that's really good to hear. Um, we mentioned earlier about the allegations of wage theft. Barista Parlor offered a statement to Tennessee Lookout uh, saying that the employees are lying. In their statement, they said Barista Parlor vehemently denies any claims that the company tolerated or condoned abusive working conditions, withheld tips, or stole wages from its employees. We are disappointed by the false and unjustified narrative that a few former employees have perpetuated. Barista Parlor prides itself on its community roots, ethical products, and our culture. We offer competitive wages among the top of our industry peers, which we just debunked, as well as attractive benefits, including 401k match, health insurance, free coffee, <laughs> free coffee, and PTO potential. Noel said that she never received any time off and management did not answer to a follow-up <laughs> questions about that portion of their statement. So yeah, really crazy stuff going on in, in the Nashville coffee scene, uh, but all power to the workers who are fighting for uh, what they deserve. And, Absolutely. Uh, we're going to keep our eyes on that situation. Yeah, definitely sending our love and solidarity to all those coffee workers and wishing you all the success in this organizing campaign. I hope you get what you deserve. Uh, it's interesting that we talk about this today because just this morning, uh, you know, before I left the house, I was tipped off about a story in Montgomery, mm. uh, Tomatino's Pizza, where uh, they had the gall to say when they were closing that uh, business cannot sustain itself due to inflation, post-COVID inflated wages overhead and employee theft of property oh now would you be surprised <laughs> to hear that uh some of the employees of said closed pizza shop are claiming they haven't been paid their last checks uh. so uh we'll see what happens there i uh encourage folks to contact the department of labor uh and reach out to them uh you know and if that happens to you certainly encourage you to do that uh, but yeah, all power to these workers in Nashville and certainly these workers in Montgomery. Hope you get your wages yeah. uh, and, you know, keep us keep us posted. 
Yeah, and there is still more in that article on the Tennessee Lookout by Lonnie Lee Hood. So, yeah, definitely check, uh, check that it out. out. Yeah, for sure. And follow them on Twitter at, I think it's just at Lonnie Lee Hood. So yeah, follow them on Twitter. Um, so we got about 10 minutes left in the reg, in you know, how long we would regularly go, Adam. So what do you want to hit next? Well, let's just... I'm just going to go through and kind of mention some of the stories that we've been talking about or that we were interested in talking about and maybe just talking it out. We can figure it out uh, if that makes sense. So right. a, a few that we meant to get to earlier this this morning, and actually I do know one that I, I certainly want to talk about, which is NEA in AFSFI. Hmm. Um, I, I definitely want to talk about that one just because of its timely nature. Uh but we also uh, have some news on the campus workers, United Campus Workers here in Alabama, uh, taking on action in Tuscaloosa. Uh, there are updates in Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas has seen uh, some big wins for their educators, but also, uh, you know, continued strike or lockout. Not quite sure uh, in, in with the nurses in Austin. Uh, We've also got issues going on with Maximus, uh, particularly in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, home of the University of Southern Mississippi. Mm. Uh, so uh, I know a couple of our CWA brothers here in Huntsville made the drive down to Hattiesburg recently mm -hmm. to, to show their support and solidarity. Um, of course, we've got the Supreme Court up to its uh, bullshit recently. Um, Cop City is also another hot topic going on. Um, and um, we also got some questions about left organizing, uh, yeah. which was interesting, a comment. So uh, how about we talk about the NEA story and then see where yeah. we go from there. Let's do it. Uh, so I did want to highlight this one because uh, it you know has a special place in my heart, basically. Um, <clears throat> the Association of Field Service Employees, or AFSI, uh, represents some of the employees of the NEA, the National Education Association, which is technically the nation's largest union. I say technically because many of its state affiliates, including the one in Alabama, disavow unionism and instead prefer to be labeled as and operate as so-called professional organizations. This aside... The NEA has been holding its annual representative assembly uh, just this past week, and that is, if I'm not mistaken, the largest democratic deliberative meeting in the world. Uh, it's really a, it's an amazing experience. I uh, got a chance to serve as a, as a delegate. I was elected, uh, I believe, after my second or third year of teaching, and uh, got a chance to go to Denver, Colorado. It was, uh, you know, it was a great experience to get to to vote on the direction of the union, to get to uh, speak to items that I supported or opposed, uh, to hook up with like minds and, and uh, meet up with caucuses. At that time, um, I remember the Badass Teachers Caucus, the BATS. Uh, I remember the NEA Peace and Justice Caucus, uh, which certainly uh, uh, drew me in. Um, uh, but quite a few. And so uh, it's a really, it's a big deal. And the NEA always has it around the 4th of July. They just held it this, you know, like I said, this past week. So I've seen a lot of teachers talking about it. 
And I think it's important to share what's been going on uh, behind the scenes there. We all know that folks don't always practice what they preach. You know, we see it with the nonprofit industrial complex. We see it with the supposedly progressive employers, you know, companies that the more foolish among us might label as woke, uh, companies that betray a progressive image while exploiting their workers, engaging in vicious union busting and similar behavior. And unfortunately, we see it sometimes with labor unions and the way they treat their own employees and the staff unions of those employees. And that certainly seems to be the case with the NEA in its dealings with AFSI. Uh, here's one of the latest updates that the AFSE, uh, the Association of Field Service Employees, has shared recently with supporters uh, regarding what's been happening at the Representative Assembly. On Wednesday, the day after NEA management called the cops on AFSCE members passing out leaflets, we returned to the NEA representative assembly to stand with NEA members at the Freedom to Learn rally. AFSCE uh, members work alongside NEA members daily in the struggle to protect public education and the right for all students, educators, and communities to learn and thrive. However, we were denied entrance to the rally and the opportunity to stand with NEA members in solidarity. After being prevented from attending the Freedom to Learn rally, AFSCE members gather to talk with NEA members, take photos, and share our flyers. We were once again approached by a convention security officer and told we could not distribute information about our union. We then unfurled our small banner and stood silently in the convention center concourse while members stopped to greet us, take photos, and show their support for the staff union. After standing peacefully with our banner for 10 minutes, we were confronted by convention security. NEA members witnessed convention security ordering us to put away our banner and leave the premises. NEA members stood with us, denouncing this blatant attack on our freedom of speech, and were brought to tears as security staff threatened to have AFSCE members removed if we did not cease spreading our, quote, propaganda. So let's all be honest here. All that AFSCE members have done this week is quietly and joyfully share flyers and stickers, occasionally hold some signs, and reconnect with amazing leaders and members with whom we work side by side all year long. Our goals have been honesty and fairness, not disruption nor discord but maybe NEA management finds honesty and fairness disruptive. Almost all of the security guards and Orange County Sheriff's deputies who confronted, threatened, and expelled us said clearly and specifically that NEA was their client, and the client wanted the union gone. The only exceptions were a few officers who said, quote, the powers that be, or the people running the show, didn't want us sharing our information. While we asked questions about why NEA and law enforcement were limiting our freedom of speech, never receiving a satisfactory answer, we ultimately complied with law enforcement directives every time. AFSCE members are deeply honored to work with and for NEA members and are grateful and proud of those who have expressed solidarity with us this week. Thank you, truly. We are also sorry that so many had to witness NEA managements demonstrating the most blatant hypocrisy. On a day when NEA defended the, quote, freedom to learn, AFSCE members and NEA members were denied their freedom of speech. 
Ashley will never stop fighting for NEA members, and NEA members showed they stand with the union in our fight for a fair contract that our members deserve. Uh, I want to just say that having worked for an NEA affiliate before, um, these hardworking folks definitely deserve to get a fair contract. Uh, it's you know, ridiculous that they would be treated this way by NEA management to have the cops called on them. But I also know that whether it's NEA or their affiliates, they really hate when the members find out that there's internal labor strife. They really hate when members hear directly from the staff union. Um, that's something that really threatens them, I suppose. They or they feel threatened by it, I should say. It doesn't have to be threatening, but that's how it's perceived by them. Um, and so to even acknowledge that, hey, we have a staff union and our staff union has issues with your manage with the management of the association, to even go that far uh, is is a step too far for some of these folks in management. And, you know, I can't help but wonder if some of that is connected to their broader philosophy in the way in which they like have one foot in the labor movement, one foot out. And yeah, they're the largest union, but don't necessarily call us a union depending on where we're at. Um, you know, I can't help but wonder if maybe some of that bleeds over into the culture internally and the way in which it treats its employees. Uh, you know, I, I remember NISO, the NEA staff organization, uh, who would be the professional employees of the NEA, primarily at NEA, based out of NEA headquarters at least. You know, they had a really tough contract fight a couple of years ago that we were reported on uh, on the Valley Labor Report. Um, and, you know, myself personally, I experienced union busting from the Alabama Education Association management, um, you know, red baiting, uh, retaliation, um, collusion with school district leadership, um, you name it. So, um, you know, really just sending my best to the Association of Field Service employees, uh, keep staying strong, keep organizing, keep staying true to your union values and remember why you do the work that you do. Um, and don't ever forget that you're there for the members. And, uh, you know, what you're, you're fighting for ultimately is in the best interest of the members. And what's best for the members is really going to be what's best for the students. So, you know, you just keep that in mind and stay strong. Absolutely. Um, you want to hit one more before we head out? Or you want to go ahead and wrap it up? Uh, what you got? Um, let's do, we can do this about the campus workers. We weren't able to get that. Yeah, in, in yeah the, we did want to talk about that in the main show this morning. Yeah. But 
uh, want to make sure we do discuss that. Yeah, so last month, uh, members of the United Campus Workers of Alabama, uh, Communication Workers of America Local 3965, uh, delivered a petition to the Board of Trustees of the University of Alabama system when they met on June the 8th in Tuscaloosa. The petition calls for the extension of health care benefits to all UA employees, including part-time faculty and graduate workers. Um, the union says that this is necessary because in previous years, adjunct faculty at UA had access to the university health care plan. But after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, UA excluded adjuncts from coverage. Graduate workers have access to a student health plan, but the coverage has, less, has, has left many students uninsured and saddled with medical debt due to poor coverage. The Crimson, uh, the Crimson White, which is the student newspaper at the University of Alabama, had a good article about that. And in their article, uh, they quote one of the uh, union members saying that UA's marketing slogan is where legends are made, but making legends requires that our campus be a place where people are empowered to be their best so that they can become the best. P.D. Edgar, a, an M.A. journalism and M.F.A. creative writing student, said... Regardless of how invested we are educationally, legends will fail if they can't get glasses or dental care or a surgery our current insurance calls non-emergency. That has to change for us to really be a place that puts our money where our mouth is. Uh, so really good stuff there from the Crimson White. Uh, the petition calls for uh, the reinstatement of affordable subsidized access to university-sponsored health insurance for all adjuncts and that graduate workers and all part-time workers be given the same health care plans as faculty and staff at affordable subsidized rates. The petition also calls for a needs assessment so the university community can, can ensure all workers have equitable access to all critical services including mental health care. Uh, so really good news uh, there um, for uh, university workers at the University of Alabama. Here is hoping that the Board of Trustees uh, reverses their decision from uh, almost 10 years ago when they kicked adjuncts off of their health insurance. Yeah, absolutely. Shout out campus workers for doing that. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great action that you took and really appreciate what you're doing. And and I hope it spreads the word and more folks do get involved in the union and, and strengthen the union because, um, you know, y'all need it for sure. Yeah. With that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. Like I said, at the top of the show, uh, next week we're going to be talking to Teddy Ostro. Uh, really like, looking to, forward to that. I yeah. just listened to his episode on Citations Needed, mm. and uh, it was a great episode yeah. and really enjoyed that. So, uh, Which also, by the way, uh, our our dear brother Maximilian Alvarez was on Citations Needed recently, mm. uh, talking about an issue that we covered on the show, the Obama Netflix series. Oh, uh, and so is his articles in Descent Magazine out yet? Uh, I'm not sure that it's out yet. I know he's been working on it. Um, he was still working on it at the time of okay. uh, the Citations okay. Needed episode, gotcha. um, but he had already watched the series like. Oh, my God. I don't know how many times he had said he had watched it by, at that point. Like, at least eight times he's watched the whole series. Oh, no. That uh, which terrible. It sounds so brutal. <laughs> so brutal. And uh, probably especially brutal for Max, considering yeah. 
considering like how it it definitely is a weird ripoff pseudo take on his kind of mm-hmm. work and so yeah i just wanted to <clears throat> shout out those episodes um always like it when when friends of the show are doing cool things and uh, you were on America's Workforce Union Radio oh, this, yeah. this week, and I, I will be on it that next week. Uh, cool. I will be on it on the twelfth. Uh, you are on what the fifth? Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, so yeah, definitely check out America's Workforce Radio. Uh, it's a union talk radio show up in Ohio, uh, hosted by Ed Flash Parents. Uh, it's five days a week. It's um, it's been going on for. 30 years. 30 years. 30 yeah. years going strong. And uh, they have been uh, supporters of this program. And, uh, you know, between Jacob and I, we're on at least once a month. And uh, so we really appreciate them doing that and appreciate the collaboration. Yep. And if there's any other union radio shows out there or, you know, union friendly, labor friendly radio shows, podcasts that are out there, uh, hit us up. And, you know, if our schedules allow, we would like to do some collaboration for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So make sure that you tune in to the show next week. We're going to be talking to Teddy Ostro to help us contextualize the contract negotiations right now. And in particular, we're going to be talking about the 97th strike. So uh, it's going to be good stuff. Uh, so with that, we're going to go ahead and roll out. Appreciate everybody's time. Uh, see you next week. Bye, y'all.